Hi, Jeremy. Hi, Raphael. Uh, what's going on? What is going on? Um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, podcasting, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so enthusiastic. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Well, I don't know. I, I guess I got I a podcast. Yeah. Well, I, I didn't. I didn't have a great sleep last night. But what have you been up to? I, I feel like we just did a little chat before the podcast, which is a no-no. But we had to clear up a few um, things. And uh, I've been I've been obsessing again over stereo equipment, and I bought something not too crazy. But I've I've oh. been going down the rabbit hole on the internet of stereos, and it, it, it really, it, I was. I went to a stereo store and I was like, okay, I might use this amp for 30 years, so maybe it's worth getting something really nice. And then I listened to it and it sounded great. And I was like, oh, the tube amp and it's amazing and it sounds really warm. And mm-hmm. then I was like, okay, and I'll need some cables. And then he oh, said, no, okay, okay, so the cable from the amp to the speaker, what's the distance? Okay, that's about a thousand. The cable from the DAC to the amplifier, that's about eight. And then I was like, wait, is all of this a scam? Because there's no way that's worth. And then I started looking at... The cable's definitely a scam. Well... I can tell you. No, the digital cables are a scam. And there's actually... There's empiric evidence of different sounds and different... But if you have a really shitty speaker and it has noise or the the ground is not going through, you you Mm. could hear a hiss or you could hear noise. But the... So there just needs to be shielding on it though, right? Well, it's also the thickness of the... This is analog signal. This is not digital. Mm -hmm. For HDMI, there's no difference between expensive cable... But my point was that the the cables go up to speaker cables go up to thirty thousand. So there's people with thirty thousand dollars speaker cables. Yeah, that seems ridiculous. They're like they're like a, a vacuum cable, like that sort of that yeah. thickness. Who are these? Who are these people so that I can maybe visit them? <laughs> good, good. If you if you look stereophile or audiophile on on YouTube, there's I mean there's people who generate their own current. This Japanese audiophile. There's a little movie on his apartment. His apartment costs like three hundred thousand, and the stereo costs half a million. So mm. it, he he says, if you make tea, you need clean water. So if you listen to music, you need clean electricity. So he has his own generator <laughs> <laughs> because the electricity from the grid is polluted with people's distortion. <laughs> oh no! Well, actually, I so I'll agree with that because I've had this issue performing where sometimes. Depending on the venue, you might plug into it's a dirty um, electricity. AC. Yeah, and then you get noise on your. You used to get like noise on your projector when it, back in the VGA days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, you you I, definitely if you're in a sec. How do I say this without being an asshole? But if you're in a poor country and the AC kicks in, you see all the lights going off for a second, like the their grid. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah brownouts. Yeah, yeah. But but. but um, the audiophiles are a bit crazy, but on the other side of the spectrum is just that people are used to little MP3 desktop speakers, which they really, you know, that's the other side. It, it having a little little desktop speakers that are the size of a phone versus yeah. having a proper stereo. That's uh, well. Wait, what thing. are you listening to on uh, on this thing? Like, what's the what's the file or recording? Uh, is it vinyl? No, 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 no. I just listen to Apple Music. So no, oh, now now you've just thrown away. You've lost all your credibility. I know. <laughs> I know. The, because the compression format is where the most, where the dirtiest water is, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's like no, no. That's why. Like that's a, why I got a um, like a 
$1,200 set of speakers and amplifier and not the $5,000. Uh, okay. You know, I, I just Be- wanted a bit better than active speakers. That uh, The thing is, I grew up with the CD player and things like Nirvana or Metallica, and mm-hmm. I'm used to that level of sound. And then this, if I listen to those old albums, it's always a bit like, hmm, yeah. I can hear the yeah. shortcomings. But there were tests online that the... The Apple Music sounded better than Tidal, even the the Tidal claims it's uncompressed. Uh, oh really? Yeah. So mm. it it's all very mysterious. But there's a funny page. It's a, an an audio blind test where you'll have three versions of a song, and you have to listen to them and and uh, rate which one is the best one. And then I have f- about five songs on the page, and one is a, a small MP3, one is a big MP3, and one is uncompressed. Mm-hmm. But if you're listening through your headphones straight into your laptop, you're listening to your uh, laptop's digital audio, audio converter. Driver. So that's yeah. already you probably couldn't tell the difference. So, mm-hmm. but it, anyway, the the whole thing with the whole stack of stuff. Um, if I have to get everything uncompressed and or even on vinyl, I just don't have the space for it, nor do I want to. So I'm going to yeah. see if it sounds a lot better with these big speakers. I can tell you next week. Well, also, also, as I recall, you live in Manhattan, <laughs> surrounded by like, you know, noisy streets and... And, and, and lots of and, like, distortion the, on the electric grid. Yeah, it seems like there's like, there's just, once you get going, like you said, down the rabbit hole, there's just so many little things you'd have yeah. to remember. And then what are you seeking? You're seeking the purity of being there in person. But if you were there in person... No, that's not what I'm seeking for. What I'm seeking for is power. I just want... Hmm. I just want it to sound uh, fuller. So I think even if you play a shitty MP3, but you play them on big mm-hmm. speakers, they sound louder yeah. and they sound more powerful. So It just occurred to me that in the future, we're going to have, maybe we'll have this conversation about augmented reality or virtual reality. And we'll be like, well, the lenses uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. on this, they distort slightly. It's like well, the performer's not right in front of me. You know what I'm saying? I, I, do, feel, <laughs> like I do feel like there's a fog. There's a whole thing now on the Apple TV and the, the quality of streaming TV and HDR and 4K. And yeah. it gets funny because for, it, you can keep upping resolution, and that makes sense for a phone. It's close to your face. Yeah. But I have friends who, I think I mentioned this before, they bought a 4K TV, and they moved their couch closer to the TV so they could actually see the difference. Because they couldn't tell yeah. the difference from <laughs> the comfortable distance. Yeah. So, Like, I live in a tiny apartment, and my 4K, I can rarely tell the difference between my 4K TV. But I'll, so when I have it... Th- there's, it's like your your friend said about tea, though, or the guy, rather the YouTube guy said about tea. It's just like there's a clarity there. But I yeah. think we're gonna get, you're gonna get into the same territory of like it's a subjective well, opinion. Yeah, and the thing if you asked objective, it, the the thing is, I waited a long time to buy good speakers because my apartment is so small and I can't really place them ideally. Because mm. ideally, my desk would be on one side of the room and the speakers would be a lot further. Mm-hmm. So the the sound can travel, and I would have maybe some textile on the wall to, yeah. to muffle everything. Uh, so that's why I waited even five years to get good. I've always had good speakers, but I waited a long mm-hmm. time. But at some point, I was like, I, I can't listen to these computer speakers anymore. Yeah, my speakers. I just uh, my neighbor was moving out, and he gave me his speakers. That's <laughs> mm. <laughs> like, but, uh, but I mean, good, how often uh, do you li- listen to music? Uh, I listen. Uh, every day, but and that, but uh, okay. often through headphones, I would say. Okay. Because Kristen uh, gets uh, upset about it. Yeah, yeah. Because I'm at home alone all day, and I just blast the music. And, uh, it's it. Oh, I, yeah, I think like, I think 
I work about an hour and a half a day and the rest is browsing music and going on YouTube, looking at interviews. And it's really four or five hours a day of uh, active listening. It's the romantic studio visit where, you know, someone's climbing up the Manhattan, the narrow Manhattan staircase. What's that rock music? (laughs) You open the door with a cup of coffee, your hair frazzled. Hey, welcome to my studio. (laughs) 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 Yeah, these paintings are in the trash, whatever. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Fuck that shit. It's the whole New York (laughs) (laughs) But it is a good segue. It is funny that all the audiophile videos, that they have totally the wrong rooms. All of them live way too small for the stereo. Their stereos. They spent all their money on stereos. Yeah. yeah. But I thought that's actually not a bad segue into this week's uh, topic, which I get to choose. Uh, (laughs) But I actually struggled with. But uh, in regards to what we're talking about, it's like, could... um, could you objectively tell the, me the differences between the audio? Like what your, or would you need someone? Are we, you know, with audio, like when the yeah, differences yeah, well, very slight. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's the the web page with the blind test where you have a mm-hmm. a one twenty eight MP three, a three twenty yeah. MP three, and a FLAC, and you can play yeah. them all in the browser, but it won't tell you which is which. We'll put it in the show notes. It's very fun to try because I I couldn't okay. tell at all. But then, if you had to explain to someone else what the differences were between those things, what what, what would you rely on? Would you would you make them listen? They can't listen because of well, all these device constraints. So you some things I think some things uh, with blind tests, this they're hard to. For example, my parents uh, they have big speakers in the living room, which mm-hmm. the TV is connected to. So whenever the news is on, I think the whole neighborhood can hear it. It's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. But then my mom has a desk and her laptop and she listens to Spotify and it's connected to this tiny little desktop speaker because it's convenient. But yeah. you can definitely tell the difference between the big system and the small. Like a, that's, that's the difference between a pizza and macaroni. It's, it's a really big difference. <laughs> pizza and macaroni are quite different. Mm-hmm. What I was going to say, though, is that like sometimes when people can't explain a subjective difference between things they rely on another media to make it more clear an analogy so like, an analogy a metaphor or a visualization uh which is kind of funny you know so the topic is data and visualization quantification um you know data basically and what we're talking about with music is like you know this data that we think is the same everywhere right is actually not and there are a myriad of things that interfere with that um and even when we get the exact same setup and we put three different audio recordings on one web page and maybe everyone has the same computer and the same headphones and you have everyone listen to it, the decision about which one is better is comes down to a, a difference of opinion. And if you ask the person to articulate why, without them reasoning, without them using objective reasoning, they might struggle. Can, can you um, give another example that it's not audio? Yeah, so <clears throat> like... It's just, it's very funny because uh, working in software, people are like in love with data, right? Like, it's like you, if, you do an inter- if you do an interview for a software job, just sprinkle the word data throughout your <laughs> presentation. Like, well, of course, we'd have to look at the data. Well, the data said that uh, we should do this. Or, uh, well, you know, the data shows, uh, you know, this correlation. If you uh, pivot that table, the data will show you. Anyway, the data is always showing you something, right? Um, but what in my experience over the years is that the interpretation of the data is far more the storytelling. Um, this, yeah, is far more what it's about well, than it, the data that's itself. A the data of has the no brain. Like, yeah. yeah. 
Well, the, the data has no opinion, but you, the human, showing yeah. someone else the data. But, but we give data this agency, just like you, you said objectively, this sounds better. Right? But like the, the thing that's, that's making the, the file itself has no opinion about how it sounds, right? <clears throat> no, and so but, it's up to you to interpret it. For me, it, yeah, I remember, it, I don't know what you call it in English, we had math class and like different subjects in math. And one is calculating chances of things and statistics. Yeah, statistics. Mm -hmm. Um, and our math book said there's some quotes by politicians that the biggest liar is statistics because you can present it in so many different ways you can present facts in different ways or you can edit and so well, it looks scientific and, yeah, and I, but it has an agenda I'm I'm pro pro science like but yeah. I'm not I, but like at a certain point in I work in corporate culture there is not the level of scientific exactitude that you'd expect Now, there are data scientists that I work with that are super smart, and they spend a lot of time getting it right. But I remember when I started out, it was so amusing, because I've been in the same place long enough. I've observed people present data, say it's absolutely fact, and your, your, your subjective opinion is wrong. And then a year later, they'd be like running, they'll run an, they'd run a nut, the, the same test again. I'd be like, why are we running this test again? Oh, well, the, the data back then, the scientist who was doing that, or the, the data person, they had it all wrong. And I was like, but, but they told me <laughs> I was wrong. <laughs> and then the next year, another person shows up. It's like, mm, that guy didn't know what he was doing. Here's the way it's <laughs> And I've seen that happen like seven or eight times. So you have to make like, big decisions. Like, do we go left or right? Or do we take that road or that road? Well, you, and it usually comes down to, like you said, macaroni and pizza. <laughs> it's like how different the data is. It, and it, it's, it's when you get into the subtle spaces, like, um, you know, the, the one or two percent differences. Uh, yeah, those and, are hard. Yeah. But it, it, and, and there's a lot of interpretation that goes on there. What's interesting to me about data visualization is when it gets to the very things that affect you. And of course, we're talk, we can talk about climate change, but there's also more day-to-day -day things like mm. um, so Americans like to borrow there's like no no fear of borrowing and I come from a different culture but I remember we had economics class and our economics teacher tried to make us understand how crazy exponential compound interest is mm -hmm. and it's something I, I remember all these things you know there's a, a curve for speed and a curve for acceleration and the curve for speed is a curve and then the line for acceleration is a straight one like concepts like that mm -hmm. you have to learn but I, f I feel like our brain we can kind of understand it but we don't uh, intuitively yeah. understand even how much you what I'm trying to say is that there's these these things that for example people can be afraid of flying and you can show them any graph in the world and say this is safer than driving a car this is even safer than sitting at home Uh, mm -hmm. And the same people might smoke or eat fast food, and that might actually kill them. So there's this thing where your brain is wired for immediate danger, and even now that we've evolved, that we can organize and we can see, we can predict up to a percentage what your life expectancy is and what could influence your life expectancy, we're still scared of things that are right in front of us that are visual, like flying a plane. Right. I mean, and we have this, like you know, brain that's driven by emotion or the like limbic brain kind of. And then we have this sort of conscious uh, system that's making, you know, rational decisions, right? There's the irrational and rational yeah. thinking. Um, and I think more often than not, we 
are using our irrational system but pretending to be rational. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you ever do you it, ever catch yourself? You're like, oh, I thought I was in control, but it was actually my subconscious deciding. Oh, like a hundred percent. So I rely so strongly now on my subconscious that I don't even think that uh, I have a rational brain. <laughs> <laughs> but you like, work in a very. I mean, your day job, of course, art making. You you let your imagination flow, hopefully. Mm-hmm. But your day job is accounting software, so that's definitely on the rational side, you would think. You would think, but um, actually, it's funny, at work right now, I'm leading, like, sort of... Uh, You're saying like accounting a, a, is more dreamy than you think. Well, I'm doing, like, a book club on, like, how to discuss design right now at work, because there's been, you know, a lot of a lot of people in we do a lot of critique circles and stuff and then there are people in these rooms and you're like they're getting either personally offended or they're providing unhelpful critique or they're just doing things that you know when you're in art school you know that person right like or when you were, if you're in design school yeah <laughs> like not Raphael again <laughs> and so I was like do these people know like about critique etiquette like has anyone and, and and so I asked a few people, you know, how do you think you're supposed to do this? And 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 there's like it was just all mostly wrong answers. And there were a few good instincts in there too, but it's like, well, there's like some basic ways that you do this. And you know, one of the things is um, you don't use creative thinking in a critique; you use analytical thinking, right? But you have to be explicit about. But you like, have to get really creative on s- not offending people. <laughs> <laughs> Right. No, well, uh, yeah, of course you have to be the person that's receiving the critique also has a responsibility not to be defensive. But like the analytical versus the creative mind, uh, it's very different, right? The well, analytical it, is super conscious. It, it seems right? that everybody in a group has to give up that they, uh, that they are a separate entity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> well, you. I mean, no, the power of critique, though, too, is that you're bringing all these brains together to analyze a problem. And really, you have to start with like an objective. So what are we trying to achieve? And then you want those analytical minds not to become the creative minds that are like, what are we trying to achieve? We're trying to achieve that. I have an idea. Your idea sucks. My idea is better. What you want instead is for them to say like, oh, that's your objective. Yeah. Well, you have a platonic ideal can, and we're, we're, yeah. we're, we're trying to get to a destination. Yeah, I can tell that you're gonna you're not gonna achieve your objective based on these criteria because you're doing this wrong or that anyway. So it's two different ways of thinking about things. But a lot of times, I think when people look at data, you know, uh, they think they use that creative mind and they use that subconscious, and they just like go wild on it, right? And yeah. So they're like, but there's oh, there, yeah, that's what we're seeing. There, there's a there's a way of designing where it goes too far on the goal oriented side, and you get to sort of the Dell model of making computers and it's like well but these components are cheaper and we can stack them and and there's no vision there's no unifying mm-hmm. design language and you get yeah. to things that make sense for a corporate order because like well we can get cheaper parts if we wait a while the price goes down and then we get more RAM for the buck and everybody's happy and it works but then yeah. that's that's the that's the logical side of how to build a computer system and then there's the, that's also, the other side where, yeah, if the computer's more portable, people actually take the computer with them, and so they're more productive. Yeah, well, I mean, and my point is, like, if we were to come back to your stereo, it's like, at the end of the day, like, the objective differences between these stereos is going to be rather minute. And so your heart probably should take you to the stereo that makes sense for you. And so, you know, Simon Sinek wrote this, like, book, Start With Why. I'm, I'm sure you've seen his, like... TED Talk. I think I posted it in the show notes before, but 
you know, people don't buy what you do, they buy why you do it. That's his like tagline. Right? <laughs> but what he's saying I is think like, in life, features... if you want to make money, you just got to have a good tagline. That's <laughs> true. That's why a famous new media artist type for me. But like they, they don't buy what you do, they buy why you do it. What does he mean by that? It's like they're not buying the features, they're not buying all the data points, like five thousand bits of audio and <laughs> I'm talking like now you can tell I'm definitely not an audiophile. He's like it's not the resolution of the audio format. They're buying if the if it was, it was because it's it's the why you do it, because you're dedicated to building, you know, the world like you you loved music from a child, you yeah. know, and like and you want to create the well, this, this experience it's also, for everyone. It's funny when you say, Oh, it's only the two percent difference between all the top notch amps, but still the the top notch amps are so much better than what anyone had, so it'll still I, I guess it's like sushi. When you get two dollar sushi you mm-hmm. probably get a stomach ache. And then if you right. spend ten dollars it's already way better. If you spend a hundred dollars it's Amazing, but if you spend a thousand, the jump from ten to hundred is way more different than the jump from hundred to thousand. Well, yeah, in data, there's this eighty twenty rule, right? Yeah, like uh, there's a diminishing returns after you get to eighty percent, sort of maximum of uh, kind of uh, what is it? Like most of the time, most of the results happen at the eighty percent level. The last twenty percent is really hard to get. Um, and then there's like there's like rules of factor of ten. But this, like, yeah, this is interesting to me because. I've heard 80-20 many times. It's still hard. I think there's a part of our brain where we can understand the numbers. You can even take a felt pen and put some points on a on a sheet of paper, on a gridded paper, and you can see the graph, and you understand mm-hmm. it for 10 minutes. But you'll still, your brain will still go back, like, reverting to another part of it which doesn't understand it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and if we were to, like... If we were to pull this back uh, like a layer, there's like a little secret narrative underneath this that relates to art. You know, like people who don't really understand art will typically walk into a gallery and they'll look for the data. <laughs> They're like, how much does this painting sell for? Yeah, how many right? biennials well, like, has this artist been in? How long did this take to make? Yeah. You know, like, what what is the size of this? What is the yeah, material? Yeah, what was how- the price last year? What's the price this year? Yeah, so they'll start to like look for all of the objective data. They'll try and get that all together in a bag, and they'll be like, they'll they'll set that on the table, and they say, well, "This doesn't make any sense." <laughs> like, my my child, my child has has better data points than this artist yeah. that's worth thirty. But years, the whole right? point is that I think the whole point is you differentiate by not making sense. So the whole world makes sense, and then there's the secret world where things don't make sense. But I think it's because you're you're deep in that twenty percent, right? Like when yeah. you get deep on the tw- now, a bunch of things in the art world don't make sense. But like, we'll save that for another day. But deep inside the twenty percent, you know, because there there are artists you and I both think are extremely valuable, and who others might not understand their value. It's because we have the nuance to understand, like, and all the context and our history, and we can connect all the dots. And you're like, this is a this is a beautiful thing. Can't, why can't you see that, right? Um, and so probably in music, it's you know, or your stereophile community, it's the same as well. Uh, but in in startup culture, that would be like, it brings me back to these, you know, three or four data scientists, all of them with a different opinion, but they're bringing so much of that opinion is based on their previous experiences with data. Yeah, right? yeah, like, yeah. I think this is what we're seeing. But I th- I, I I do think there's a a thing in uh, software design that you can do A/B testing, which takes out a lot of the subjective discussions. Mm, but not true though. If we can if we can explain what A B testing is. Yeah, yeah. So 
So A-B testing is you have two versions of a thing. And uh, so let's say it's a website. Uh, you have two yeah, let's say that different Go- designs. Google has a website where they're deciding on the size of the search box and like which people yeah. like more. Yeah. Yeah. And so they would like, yeah, one has a tiny search box, one has a huge one. Yeah. And they run it for 10 minutes, the one, and they run it for 10 minutes, the other, and they do that for well, a week. Yeah, no, the, the way it would do it is the audiences that visit would be split into two groups. Yeah, so like 50% of users would see the small box and 50% would see the large box. Um, and it wouldn't be 10 in 10 minutes. It would, it's a random sampling order, but it eventually works out to 50-50. And then uh, at the end, they'd see who had used the large box more than the small box. And so that's a really nice clean test, though, that you propose, and one that would probably, you know, you could say people prefer the large box. You could, and you could say that objectively, but I'm just guessing people would prefer the large box. But you couldn't say subjectively why. That's yeah. still true yeah. in that case. Now, that's a really clean example. And so you wouldn't know why. So you'd go and do the big box. And then you'd be like, well, there's a bunch of other design improvements we want to make. So you might add like three or four other things to the page. And on the on one version, and three or four other on 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 the other, and then you'd have a conversation at work where they're like, "Ooh, how are we going to isolate these variables?" We'll be like, "Well, we want to add this like I'm feeling lucky button, and we think that the like there needs to be like a microphone in in there for audio." Anyway, you get to this point where the test starts to get very messy very quickly, and the problem with that is not that you couldn't eventually figure out who the winner was. You could, but your sample size now gets split up if you try and test for each variable. And I think I was explaining uh, this last week, or a couple, no, not last week, a couple weeks ago, now they're using artificial intelligence systems to sort of run some of these tests yeah. with the concept of a multi-arm band. Yeah. Um, it was, you know, and so suddenly, like, the objectivity of it is is less and less, statistic, statistical res- relevance is harder and harder to achieve. Like, Google actually can run, the, you know, their famous 42 shades of blue test <clears throat> because they have so much traffic, right? Yeah. And statistical significance is something that is the most important thing to understand, probably, if you're doing this type of testing, which is that the confidence in your results is relative to the size of your sample, the number of people that are in the test. And it takes a long time, the more variables there are to get confidence that statistically enough people, it's not, you're not just seeing random variants. It's it's also that, like, if you take the history of uh, photo sharing, like Flickr was probably Mm -hmm. testing oh, if we put the photo upload button a little bit bigger, that encourages people to upload photos. So they're, they're optimizing the process. And then Facebook comes along with social photo uploading, and that just blows it away. And then Instagram comes along with a product that's dedicated to only photos, and that blows Facebook away. So you can A-B test, let's put the link 10 pixels to the left or 10 pixels to the right, and then somebody comes along with a way better idea, and just then those yeah, details so in- don't matter. And then in all design and testing circles, uh, they you know there's this concept of the the bold test, right? Like because if you continue to try and tw- tweak the button color to get um, you know your conversion rate or whatever usage rate up, if you're just changing the color, it's really not enough to make a difference, right? It's you're you're into that one percent audio elitism <laughs> kind of yeah, state. Yeah, yeah. And so it's like, no, no, we're going to try putting 100 buttons that are flashing, and that'll we'll see if what difference that makes, right? And that's a, called a bold test. Or we'll just completely design this well, we'll page rename to be super the, short, and it's yeah, just a video. We'll rename the company. And it's, you know, statistically, you'll get a bigger result. And it's because 
But the thing no one ever says is it's be- is that it's the why that matters more, right? Like the consumer is not paying attention to where your stupid button is. Like stop talking about that. They care about why, like the why behind what you're doing. Yeah. You move the search box is bigger because Google wants this to feel easier, and this does feel easier because it's bigger. And so, it, but the data can never tell you that why. Yeah, but it's it, so, it, it 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 there's no truth to either side. So I, I believe in the the exactly. big big human decision <laughs> and just saying like okay. We had search directories like Alta Vista, and they're really messy. So Google came along and made a really clean page, and it works. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, sometimes optimizing can really be very powerful, and uh, not just in 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 web design or uh, digital products, but just. Uh, oh yeah, even if you're like a shoemaker. It did make right? cars and really uh, boring. This kind of work is just okay. Let's tweak this, it. It's a little more efficient, and then now yeah. all cars look the same because it's so-called like sandpapering or you know like the smoothing the wind, out of the, the wind roughing. tunnel effect. Yeah, exactly the wind tunnel effect. Yeah, so you know it's funny because I was at uh, Autodesk is based here in Toronto and San Francisco. Oh yeah, you you, it's because you posted an image from their office. Yeah, so I was at their office this week, um, and the guy I was with offered to give me a tour of this brand new office that they had built, which is like, uh, by the way, Autodesk, they make, uh, they're the only software company ever to have won an Academy Award. I got to see their Academy Award. It was really uh, kind of funny to see that in person. Was it different Uh, in person than you thought it would be? The Academy Award? The uh yeah there's like all this like there are kind of these little inscriptions and things on the back like little details about it um i don't know and it also looked a little chintzy like it looked like the little there's like a little metal plate and it was like kind of dented like it and there was did like, it feel uh, did it feel premium or less premium than no no like the bottom is like felt and there were like loose hairs like it wasn't like a high quality <laughs> kind of it just stuff. looks good on instagram yeah, yeah, exactly. It didn't look good in person. I mean, it looked okay. It was gold. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but uh, the funnier thing was that, like, this... So they make software for the special effects industry, almost, you know, Maya, the industry standard 3D um, visualization stuff. Like, And then they've rec- recently started to get into, like, big data, like, data-driven or generative design. Um, and, oh, because they make all the CAD software that architects use. Like, the building we were in was designed by their software... Um, so like basically the whole, they're like yeah look around you everything we did this <laughs> they mm-hmm. gave zero credit to the actual designers um, but uh, what was interesting is that they put their office through their own software and had had the uh, computer or their software design the layout of their office and like lay out all the tables so what they did first though is they did a bunch of workshops with their employees where they're like tell us what you like you know in an office space <laughs> so this is kind of where things go wrong then they took all those opinions the data points had, and they like data points yeah and they assigned though they coded those into the computer and then they gave they they like interpreted that data into some themes like access to light or like proximity to quiet space or uh, views out the window and all of these factors and, and then they had the computer generate like 10,000 versions of this the layout of this office and it selected like the optimal like thing that would please everyone yeah, well, no discussion like, so the, this is it this is this is the office is everyone's gonna finally be happy like no more bitching like because it's very controversial when you move into a new office if you've ever done that people are always like where am i going to be sat like everybody's unhappy basically basically everyone's unhappy so 
you know, quite funny. I, I, he he like goes through the spiel. He does this whole data visualization. He's showing us the computer going through thousands of different <laughs> layouts. It's like very impressive. Reports. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he's got this whole thing. And then I said, well, like later in the tour, I was like, so yeah, how are how are the employees receiving the new space? They just moved <laughs> in. They're only been there a week. It's like he looked me straight in the eye with like concern. He's like, to be honest. <laughs> The reactions have been mixed. (laughs) I think there's so many moments in the history of architecture where people had grand ideas and they backfired. If if you think of modernist architecture where they wanted to completely wipe out Paris and start from the ground up and just make high rises and they thought people would be so much happier and there'd be more space for trees and, and they did that in the edges of the city and they became really depressing and they became crime-ridden because there's no natural organic balance of people and shops and activity and work and bakeries. So this was before data visualization and computational architecture, but it it seemed like a very rational thing. If, If we make buildings more efficient, you can fit more people per square foot and then you can have more nature around the building. Everybody happy. Yeah, no, I mean, and but it, the exact, it seems scientific. This, that's what I'm trying to say. It, yeah, no, no, you're you're absolutely right. And this had the great illusion of seeming scientific. And but anyone that was paying attention to what I said would probably identify the big breaking point in the story, which was they talked to people and then they took what they were saying and tried to transform it into data <laughs> that they gave to the computers. So and they like, were already biased because they already had something in mind. Like, we want it to go in this direction. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So the, in you know previ- their previous office, they had been in for like 25 years or something. And so a lot of organic systems have had evolved that typically a designer will just throw those away. And in my career, I've done that many times where I'd be like, oh, this thing's a piece of shit. I'm going to redesign it. And I throw away all the great stuff, right? Yeah, because if you only have three buttons, it's easier to design. Yeah, all the irrational decisions, all the stuff that I thought the data, you know, and and there was no data to support it. So I'd be like, there's no data to support this. Oh, let's just throw it away. You know, that would be like... Those are some of the mistakes I've made in the past. Yeah. But what I'm saying is, quite often, it's those irrational things, those things that yeah, can't yeah, yeah. be quantified. But the, the, the opposite that end up being is the whole thing. The opposite is uh, designed by committee, where you want to please all your customers, and then the product is too complicated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. Like, so <clears throat> I've talked about this before, though. I do believe that there's a, a, you know, there's an alternative. You see it in cities, the best cities already, which is like systems that emerge kind of organically uh that is to say like someone opens a bodega and then next door to that a coffee shop opens and then 30 years later a new italian restaurant opens across the street and this sort of like the complex systems have to be managed um complexly like they can't there can't be a single point or a single person that's deciding how best to make things feel natural natural systems emerge they don't it's it's They're funny not- though that I, I understand your point of view, but then I think I'm in New York and it's such a gridded city. It's a very human decision. And European cities grew organically. Mm-hmm. So each each approach has a different... Uh, this oh, but now New York is so much more organic than... I, I challenge you to like, I don't know, go to <clears throat> some like a city in Arizona or something. Hey, yeah, yeah, I love yeah. you people of Arizona, but like <laughs> planned sort of like suburban or go out into the suburbs of New Jersey or Long Island. Yeah. And you will find, like, particularly in new developments, like a lot less, um, like, a lot less happiness with how the urban environment is structured. Yeah, yeah. I I, want to move a little bit to 
actual data viz, like the type of graphics we see <laughs> in science <laughs> yeah, fiction yeah. movies. Yeah, yeah. When yeah, you have lots good. of data points and they're floating in a cloud in 3D space and you can move through mm, them. But, data. Yeah. So part <laughs> of part of that there's there's several things that are interesting to me about that. Part of it is um art making somehow comes with a weird feeling of having to justify playing with form. So mm -hmm. I think people naturally like to play with color and form, but as they grow up, they have to justify it. So if your child is four years old and is playing with crayons and says, I like red next to blue, you're like, good for you. You're not watching TV. You're being creative. But when an adult does that, it's like, well, why does this circle go next to that circle? I don't. And then data visualization comes along where people can be abstract artists, but they have a rational part behind it that, mm -hmm. that is almost like a, a pat on the back and say, it's okay to play with form because you're visualizing financial data. <laughs> right. So that's my yeah, theory it, of, of why designers love to do data visualization is it, it, it justifies uh formal exploration and yeah it's an excuse no and you're and you're right for us to get onto this topic as it relates to to art because in new especially in new media there is like there are artists that work within this realm of data visualization and you're right like it seemingly it's it you know is is this weirdly justifiable sub niche of art where it's like and it's it's fine that it exists but you're absolutely right like does it exist in contrast with the you know your pure aesthetic uh gesture that you're just referring to like pure expression yeah i right. struggle or with that as like well like I, i make the abstract browsing works because just making abstract works feels weird it's like okay if i'm if i'm deciding where this block of color goes and that how is that interesting i prefer mm -hmm. that the the a b testing of google decided at the composition Well, the same thing, if I can just go back to the Autodesk example for a second, though, like generative art is another kind of art that's, and you know, or algorithmic art. And it goes back quite far, like people like Manfred Moore in the 1960s. Yeah, I, I the think the, the whole artists wave using of, of, math. Yeah, but the whole wave, if, if you go to Dia Beacon, it's this big minimal art uh, temple outside of New York. All mm -hmm. the artists in there were all concerned with the systems. Uh, and mm -hmm. before computers are a little bit so people like Solowit or uh, anybody there it's all about systems and repetition uh, what's the name of that like uh, Kosuth or yeah 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 like, or the, the or guy Kossuth, who puts all the like neon lights uh, Donald Judd <laughs> also but yeah like uh, that whole group of people they were all considered with mm -hmm. taking out the personal gesture taking out emotion and putting systems into place Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And but like I mean, without getting into the history of minimalism, or maybe you want to go there and then modernism, uh like well actually let's go there because um, there's a certain like it's funny because I mentioned like Manfred Moore as an example, but like that's a an artist who's worked with data visualization for a long time and if you asked like uh the galleries that collect them like carol fletcher whether that work is well understood by collectors they'd say no absolutely not <laughs> because it's you know it's not that maybe because it's a little less aesthetic uh sometimes um or like it's not the artist spirit the you know the the humanity of it is missing um that there's like but it's still historically significant i guess for having tried to do something yeah it, it, it reminds me of 
there was a whole wave of process-based abstraction, which has been called crapstraction or zombie formalism, where mm-hmm. even there, it, it, there was a justification of what you were doing by saying, well, I, I tied both my hands behind my back and I uh, moved the brush with my shoulder or any, any weird process that you did. And the outcome, you couldn't tell, but it was just a justification of playing yeah, I mean, the thing that's really interesting about what we're talking about, though, is this line between the subjective and the objective, right, and relationship with the act of creation or making mm-hmm. something um, and expression, which is a subjective term in itself. Yeah. But that value is attached at some point in that chain. Well, that paradox right? like, is very interesting, yeah. Yeah, so at some point, in, in, in the, people assign value, and that point seems to be somewhere in the middle between the objective and the subjective. Well, the, the, for me, the, the interesting ridiculousness of everything is that um, people like Solowit will take a very extreme, dry, objective idea, like let's move a line from corner to corner all across the room. Mm-hmm. And it, that equation, you can. Uh, execute that as objectively as possible but the whole idea of doing that is completely subjective or, or the idea you know what I mean like you, you take a ridiculous know, yeah, idea like, and then you, you yeah. execute it as dryly as possible and that's just the same often with media art where in school your teacher will be like what are you trying to do and then yeah. you justify what's everything what's your objective but the whole idea of going to that art school is already completely but I think Irrational. you're bringing up another great, another good point, which is like Solowit does has no objective except to see the result, right? Whereas the the person doing data viz, and by the way, like data visualizations taught in every design school as core curriculum. I don't know why. I go to like dozens of portfolio reviews every year, and there's always their data visualization like project, and it looks <clears> so cool. And it, yeah, exactly. It's like the one they're most excited about. <laughs> it's like, do you want me to show you my data visualization of climate change or this or that? And I think it's because objectively, we've assigned this as something powerful that designers can do or creative people can do to help the world because everything else we do is unhelpful. But if we could just help people see... If we could you know, see this, how fast the oceans are rising. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. If you could just see the people are starving, and like you need a graph to see that. You need to see what was it, macaroni versus pizza. Yeah, and then and then <laughs> show us macaroni. And then Donald pizza. Trump comes along and just says climate change is a hoax, and that's such a powerful visual. Well, because you know he does it in relationship with his audience and what their desires are, and he goes back yeah. to why. But I, th- you know, I think like, I think the other side needs. A Trump-like character and not lots of uh, data viz. Well, at the end of the day, you need some why. That, I, I would definitely yeah, you argue need a, you, you need a, need a charismatic need a, f- a purpose. figure. Yeah, yeah, and you need a charismatic pr- figure. True, true. Like, um, but what we're talking about when we talk about charisma—that's a whole other episode. But really, it is that's like hard someone to who cares. Yeah. Well, it's someone who cares personally about it, and and who people can like. I, I we, doubt you know, that. I don't want to go too you far down the Trump rabbit people, hole, but I don't think yeah. he personally cares how the, the. No, I know, but it's yeah. the appearance of caring, yeah. right? Like it's the appear, it's this consistency over time of, and and of course we all know he's inconsistent, but in front of his audience, you'll notice like at his rallies, he's like, he's very consistent. I kind of don't want to go to Trump, but like <laughs> Steve Jobs is like. Well, an yeah, let's let's speak about 
charismatic speakers because they they go beyond something that the data and the the reality distortion field like it's ridiculous this premise it doesn't make sense but we're going to do it anyway and people follow yeah yeah so like um you know i hate to use the steve jobs example it was quite funny but people would you know i just watched the like apple keynote we talked about that last week uh for the iphone 10 and it's like the people up on stage are like reading from a script right it's like yeah you can they're almost reading teleprompter and you're just like it doesn't hit you you know well it's funny because i was watching it at work the keynote with like a bunch of developers and literally, Raph, like every few minutes, people were laughing out loud. It was just like, <laughs> we all, the shtick was so like, it's so well rehearsed that it's no longer authentic and it's no longer meaningful, right? So yeah. you're just like, what? oh, they came up with a bionic label for their chips. It's ridiculous. But they're all going to uh, get more the like phone a anyway. Routine. Yeah, for a period of time. But like someone else will come along and say like, you know what? Apple's been lying to you all this they've, time. They've been <laughs> faking like, it. And look at it. Here's how ridiculous they are. And they'll start to make the punchlines that Steve Jobs used to make. You might remember he used to make jobs uh, like jokes about Windows. And he'd like get up on stage and be like, yuck, it's disgusting, mm-hmm. right? And the reason I, I think this is gonna, you're going to see this happen is like, uh, we're a little bit off the topic of data visualization, but I don't think no, we are. No, I don't think we are. Because, because yeah. uh, the things you're talking about are hitting the brain. It's data visualization in... Uh, you're visualizing things with words. Like, I remember there's a talk by Josef Beuys, the mm-hmm. the German artist, and and he yeah. he claimed that the Netherlands lost its light. So the Netherlands had a specific kind of light that you could see in old master paintings and and later paintings, up until. So the Netherlands has a shape, and the ocean goes into the country at the top. But what happened was uh, the country was getting full, so they built a big dam, and that piece of ocean became a lake, and they put a new province. Like they put 10% of the land's mass service, just created a new area. Hmm. And his theory was that that was the eye of the Netherlands. It was a big reflective surface that was uh, reflecting the sunlight and gave the Netherlands a very unique kind of light. And that building that province, creating all that landmass in the water, uh, destroyed the Dutch light. That was his theory. And mm. and when you say you've you've put uh, dirt into the eye of a country, that's such a powerful visual. <laughs> right. I don't know if you would call that data visualization, but it's very visual. It's a very it's more visual than like a, a point cloud. You know, a point yeah, cloud. Yeah, you've yeah. seen thousands of them, and you're like, okay, whatever. But when someone says we threw sand in the eye of the country. You f- you feel the sand in the eye. It's such a powerful thing. So we are talking about data visualization, and it <clears throat> and it the whole there's the documentary made about this where scientists and artists and photographers and different people think they're thinking is there scientific proof that the light changed and etc. But it's mm-hmm. it's just an intriguing proposition. It's I mean it's art. Like I've talked about like I went to a sociology conference earlier this year and. I presented like an artwork in relationship with a paper and the artwork had like none of, like none of the data from the paper or anything. I kind of did, it, but it was more about a story and people were sort of like really blown away that art could do that because that's not what they thought of as art. They thought of it as data visualization 
like literally, right? Like they had a little gallery show going on at the conference and they're like, yeah, and this piece talks about this data point in our paper. <laughs> and I was like, what are you doing? You're destroying art's potential, which is to like transcend the literal and the objective and to get into the, you know, transcend the analytical. Transcend um, the useful. But, you, but you're reminding me that I gave a talk earlier this week on data informed design, just so happens. <laughs> <laughs> but like uh, my talk was uh, very much not about data. It was about it was kind of about a lot of these issues. And at the end of it, uh, like you know, the, there's a lot of comedy throughout the the presentation. And definitely, I presented with my like a coworker, and we got a lot of we got a lot of enthusiasm. Like people running up to us afterward, and we got like a huge round of applause at the end of the thing. Anyway, you could tell that people were enthusiastic. But it, it's because we had sort of like started the, the, you know, thing, the presentation with, uh, oh, is that your neighbor coming in? Yeah, let's pause for a second. She's always talking on her phone in the hallway. I like it. <laughs> so we can just leave it in. It's fine. They're they're particularly loud. Anyway, so we started with uh, the like the our title slide was you know it's a no brainer the brainer the data told us to do it right and you're we're talking to a design audience right and of course I know that this group of designers like there's a hundred designers doesn't want to believe that data is going to like run their creative practice right they they still believe that they have value as human yeah. beings right yeah. so i start with that thesis and we carry that through and i i give them my definition of business and i say business is just not flushing money down the toilet you know and i like i show them Maurizio catalan's golden toilet i was like please don't do this <laughs> <laughs> like, but i want to do and, that and they slowly buy in and then at the end of the thing you know, knowing that I'm giving a talk and the way talks are constructed is to create value and importance for the speaker, right? Like for them to trump themselves up one argument at a time. It's kind of form of data visualization for ego. So at the end of the presentation, my partner and I, we say like, in fact, everything we've talked to you about here is, we're, you know, we're not finished and, and we're doing a pretty bad job of it. And we didn't even come up with these ideas. Someone else wrote about it in this book. And you can buy this book on Amazon for 20 bucks. <laughs> like, and they got a huge like round of applause, like which I wasn't totally expecting, but my instincts were telling me on stage, like these, these designers just want to feel like they're empowered to do this thing, to make decisions for themselves. Like you're saying, right? To be an artist, to go out there and make something yeah. great on their own. I, I, I think we're always going to see waves, like at some point, uh, an organization, whether it's a company or an art school or a nonprofit, whatever organization, is way too far on on the wrong premise, and then maybe data visualization or even data analysis can help show them that. And then there's a wave of too much logic, and then you just need a big idea to wipe it all clean. So that I think both tools are very important. Well, I think like we shouldn't discount how much processing is going on in our subjective. Uh, unconscious reasoning right yeah. like uh and that there's a lot of number crunching going on but it's like it's of a kind that might not even be numerical right it's like it, non-analytical I, I, thinking this all reminds me of food because food um people try to apply science to food and it helped mm -hmm. get people out of famine so the, i think historically the biggest threat to to mankind is hunger so we have a very deep fear of hunger so whatever we can do store lots of food in cans even if it might take off 10 years because you might get cancer is better than dying of hunger 
Mm-hmm. So our natural instinct is to make huge reserves of food. And then it turns out that preserving food, you, you lose a lot of the quality. So maybe the 50s in the U.S. was all about optimizing industrial food. Mm-hmm. And now it's all about going back because we, we have enough food, but let's make better food. Yeah. And then it goes back. But what I'm trying to say is, for example, vitamins, you can take them out of the food and you can take the be- be- beta carotene out of a carrot. Yeah, and, and swallow it as a pill, me. but it turns yeah. out that the, a carrot is a complex organism with all kinds of bacteria, and you need the whole thing for it to be effective. And the the other thing that's interesting to me about food is that there's long term thinking and there's short term thinking. So people are scared of crossing the street because they might get hit by a car, but they're not scared of eating sugar, and that might actually kill them. It also reminds me, if we go back to your you know stereo shopping experience, that. You know the that little the, that two percent difference <laughs> that that we were talking about. Remember when you you were around when CDs were old enough that you remember when CDs came around, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the, it was brand you know, new. We went from like, like no scratches. And, it's digital. It's perfect. yeah. But uh, you know the common complaint, and that's you know one of the reasons records or you still hear this you know uh, you know out there for analog audio in, in the transfer to digital audio. They said objectively the quality is better there's more data in this recording right like and there's less noise and scratches and there's like less of that that stuff but if you if you listen to an lp like a record a vinyl record next to a cd an audiophile would say like no 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 you're losing the warmth or this it's not it's the 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 treble is too high it depends on the genre also well, yeah, for definitely for like because, digital music, yeah. digital formats are the best. Yeah. But like for the recording of a guitar solo by like I don't know Steely Dan or something like that, or well, it was recorded it, analog the, at the time, so yeah, yeah. So, but there's something lost like uh, in the translation to the digital, and so by yeah. throwing away the things, uh, you know, we just assumed it was better that, that you know in the name well, of progress a, or something. It, maybe if we go to di- to filmmaking, it's it's more clear mm-hmm. like. There's something um, film grain. It took them a lot of years to make film grain pleasing, and they developed mm-hmm. that over 80 years. But there was actual a lot of thinking into how the grain behaves, and digital came along uh, very quickly. So it, we went to see an exhibition of a Dutch um, video artist, and he operated mostly in the 90s and the early 2000s, and that was basically mm. the shittiest time for digital video. Yes, it was. And, and well, even people like Reist, it was around in that. Yeah, time. yeah, yeah. So the artists of that era have a very distinct uh, shittiness, basically. And now maybe that's charming, but I think digital video is at the point where it's much sharper than film ever was, and the, the dynamic range and the color range are starting to approach where film was. So mm-hmm. maybe it's just a, a, a hiccup in the history of, uh, of, of technology where you, you get to a new paradigm and it's more convenient but it's the quality is less but slowly uh, the quality goes up and the convenience stays um, yeah well i talked about um why video is actually not about the content so well it's about last in the last episode the performative qualities of video are really what drove its success right it wasn't that it was higher quality it was that it was more immediate more portable more, more cheaper portable, yeah cheaper yeah all of these factors <clears throat> that film could just like it just didn't make there was no comparison. It was a whole new media. It was, it's actually, 
you know, when I, I went to school for film and video, they're not even on the same spectrum. Like, if you, if I was, when I was in school, if I called something, my video a film, like, my professors would, like, yeah, yeah. rant at me for an face. hour. Yeah. yeah, I get punched in the face. Because there was philosophical and ideological differences between the media. Yeah. But this is maybe, um, I don't know, we, we have, a, we have we're, well, we're not going to do an ad today, but we have our own... We have our own we have data visualization. <laughs> we, well, yeah, we want to create a data point, right? Yeah. <laughs> we want to create. We, ha- we have a test, uh, an A/B test. You guys that can we participate. To that you can all participate in. Do you want to? Do you want to introduce the test? Whose yeah. idea was this? I think it was you. Did you say we thought it would be cool to have some merchandise, so we made T-shirts. Yeah. Um, and so we made t-shirts. You can get them on goodpointpodcast.com. Of course, this is a way for you to show your support and to look fashionable. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and, well, the, uh, maybe, I, I maybe, laugh because... Yeah, we had a, you designed the first logo, and then yeah, we were talking I, about t-shirts, so I quickly opened up the computer and thought, oh, maybe I have an idea. So I, I made a graphic, it's a good point, and there's a dot in the middle, and that's the good point. And you have it's very nice. And you have a, a wavy type logo with. It, was it based? You, did well, you we use didn't want to design this. Shir- yeah, we didn't want to design this shirt by committee, Raphael. Let's just be honest. Like yeah. we both had an authentic point of view. <laughs> yeah, but you. I'll give you, you a chance put, to pitch your shirt. We both had a vector graphic, so that was neutral. It was on, on equal footing, and then we looked at <laughs> possibilities to make an online T-shirt things without too much work. So we used Printful and Shopify and all those services. But you decided to put it on a crop top. That was your bold yeah, so decision. I, okay. Well, my why, yeah, like I have to, I'm going to pitch my shirt just for a second. So there are two shirts, each are $25. My shirt is a crop top with the original Good Point logo as pictured on our website, uh, which is in the Times New Ramen typeface by Ryder Rips, uh, an imperfect typeface by an imperfect <laughs> human. <laughs> that's a good friend and like, provocateur. And it's on a it's on a beautiful dye sublimation uh, textile, and so it's actually going to print really. Everyone is going to be unique because the way dye sublimation works is you're not supposed to print over the seams, but I've got the the logo going over all of the seams, <laughs> <laughs> so there's going to be tears and additional bends. So each shirt is going to be like there's only, each is one of a kind. It's one of a kind edition. Now, why you, you're saying why crop top, Jeremy? Well. Why not yeah, tell a us crop why. top? Who needs all that material below the waist? <laughs> yeah, the, the earth is getting warmer, and so you need to be cool. That's right. It's 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 cool. It's good. It's unisex, really. It's for men and women. Though I'm told this particular crop top is a bit short and small <laughs> from the reviews, so you should probably choose the XL. No, no matter what your size yeah. is, I would I would go for the XL. So the, the yeah the rational path if we were A/B testing would be to both print on the same T-shirt, but. Well, I don't want to say there's a competition between, yeah, like crop tops and <laughs> t-shirts. Because mine is printed so on, a, on an American Apparel shirt, so everybody knows how that fits, probably, so you know what size is best for you. Mm, mine is LA Apparel, a knockoff brand. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I, I thought American Apparel was good because they were accused of, uh, they were very over-the-top sexist. It's a dead brand. Yeah. It's a dead brand. They killed themselves. Is that why you... They killed yeah. themselves. No, I, I chose it for practical reasons because, you know, when you order a T-shirt and they, they print on a Fruit of the Loom shirt and then the sleeves mm-hmm. sort of stand up and it's literally mm-hmm. a T-shirt, like the sleeves just are in the shape of a T. Yeah. And at least the American Apparel shirts fit most people better, so I thought, yeah. 
It's mm. uh, well, and you chose gray. It's it's a nice shirt. Why did you choose the gray color? I was curious about that. Um, I like it has a little texture. It's, it's called heather gray, so it's made of different mm. strands. Uh, uh, yeah, we should put that in the description. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like you look up close, um, and there's like little different shades of gray. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I guess uh, we're just inviting our listeners. It's like to, TV noise. That's what, yeah. to decide who has the better product. I mean, ultimately, it's will decide. Uh, no, but there's no better. And, the, <laughs> and no, this this is an interesting point. This is a very interesting okay. point. So when you when you start to industrialize things and you quantify things, what happens is you you quantify results. And it, it, I'm still fascinated with this book, The Innovator's Dilemma. So you'll you'll have a product and you'll keep optimizing it. This is more efficient. If you want green beans and they come from a farm, if we throw them in a can and add some salt, everyone will like the taste and it lasts 10 years on the shelf, so it's better. Mm-hmm. But um, deciding on which t-shirt it, it sells more is not an interesting measurement. No, it's so that's true. It, it's like, are green beans better or strawberries? What What's the better food? And you could say, well, which one is more nutritious? Which one is more delicious? Which one sells more? Which one's more? right for you? That's yeah, yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> and, and, and that's the interesting point maybe for artists because you're in this weird area where there's no... If you design a doorknob, you could do all kinds of tests. Like, does the doorknob open the door more? Is it more secure? Does it hold the door better? Uh, is it quicker to open? Uh, is it more pleasing to the eye? But once you start making art, you might say, well, this has been quoted a lot in academic books, so I guess it's a relevant piece of art. But history has proven a number of times that things that were relevant at some point were irrelevant 100 years later. Or this work went for a lot at auction, but we all know that that doesn't mean anything either. So that's maybe the interesting thing in art that you... you I think the brain wants to... Uh, put things in a in a box so you say like, okay that's good that's bad and then I can sleep but mm-hmm. you have to accept when you make art that you'll never know what you did is good or bad there's really no way of knowing and that's yeah, there's I, no I way think really for me it. for me that's the hardest thing about making art is that I'll never have an answer if I did a good job or not I think one of the nice things though um you know, yeah, like, because I remember early on in my art career, like, quantified everything, right? Because I was on the internet, I could see, like, how many people were visiting the website, and yeah, how but, many people but watched then, my videos. Yeah, but then you could say, the mo- Rotten.com is a way better artist than Damien Hirst, because they get more hits. It's like... Yeah, and this is not, well, I don't, yeah, I don't know whether I pref- I like Damien Hirst or not, yeah. but, uh, I mean, I, I do know that I don't like his work anymore, but his early work, for sure, like... Yeah. Was, oh, uh, and not Damien Hirst, cool. but you could say like, okay, yeah. is Rotten.com a better artist than Yayo Kusama? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, 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 exactly. Or is Kim um, Kardashian a better artist than Kusama? Yeah, and so, the, 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 but it's certainly not going to be by the numbers. I, I, I think you're absolutely right. And certainly for the artist, it's not useful to go by your numbers. Uh, it's most useful to sort of um, go by... And some well, collectors go by numbers. They're like, oh, well, this seems to be undervalued and it's going to go up probably, so I'll buy some. Yeah, but those are not the collectors that anyone really wants to uh, have collecting their work. Uh, in fact, some galleries wouldn't even talk to those types of collectors. Yeah. There's yeah. like a... But, you know, like at the end of the day, for me anyway, it, it's joy. That's why I did the crop top. It's like, I don't expect you to buy this crop top. If you do buy it, it's because you believe in the ridiculous and the joyful. Or you have <laughs> really absurd. tight abs. 
No, I think you can wear this with a belly, to be honest. <laughs> like, I'm going to when I get my sample, uh, you know, and I'm looking forward to showing up at an opening. It reminds me of the, there's a Saturday Night Live sketch with Will Ferrell, and they, they have the Patriotism Day, and so everybody wears a USA necktie, and he comes in in a, in a USA thong and a crop top. And he, yeah. Do you know that one? Yeah, I know. It's a classic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll put it in the show notes. <laughs> it's, it's patriotism. <laughs> Um, so I guess, yeah, let's see how this, this test goes. It's, it's, a, it's a test of, uh, it's really, if, it, if we were successful, actually, they'd be perfectly even, right? And, uh, or no, I mean, yeah, I guess it's really about showing your support, ultimately, yeah. for, uh, for the show. Hopefully we can um, use it to upgrade our equipment. Or maybe there's people out there come to who a city near don't you. have enough t-shirts and like, oh, I need a t-shirt. Well, we were gonna. We should have explained. We were gonna run a Patreon page, which is like to generate revenue, so that we could do a tour. Um, and like the revenue from these shirts, uh, Raphael and I haven't actually properly discussed this. Let's just discuss it on air. <laughs> we would like. We would like any revenue. Well, first, to go we back gotta pay for in, hosting. Yeah. But we wanted to go back into the community. Like, yes, yeah, first sustain the podcast, and then like use it to reach more people and to be present and and to hopefully organize a party for people. Is there, is there not uh, any part locations. of you that's kind of like a rapper where you're like, I just want to make money and have a big... There's, there's no part of you ever that's like, yeah, I, I'd love a big... Well, the thing that I find most valuable is being surrounded by people uh, who love me. <laughs> just but I, like, I, understand, like... I understand that that's your core <laughs> value, but are there ever moments that you indulge that you're like, this sort of... You know what? Like, I, I turned uh, 38 this year and I like you know my tweet that day which was like it's lame that it's in a tweet but here you go i don't have a diary i have a tw- i have twitter was like i have um you know a great partner a you know creative job and outlet and you know audience for my work um i have you know a home uh i eat fine you know like i have i've established a relative comfort i'm healthy i have a nice family sometimes um and so like i i it's really an don't need of gratitude. anything I don't really need anything more, so I'm looking for ways to um, to be with other people and to spread some of that well-being yeah, to others. So, yeah. Do you ever think of um, becoming a teacher if you want to be with other people? Yeah, but te- you know, it's funny you say that because I was complaining about teaching this week because it's so creatively draining because you invest so much of your creative energy. I, and I have taught, obviously, and, and, I, and I do feel like teaching is what I do every day anyway, but like, do I have to do it in a classroom? I'm not certain. Yeah. But it, you you end up investing in when you're a teacher like one to one so much of your creative energy in others that you don't you spill your a lot juice. of teachers complain that yeah a lot of people complain that they don't have any time left for themselves and it, you've told me before you do have to like you know spend some time with yourself and uh, oh yeah I, I think if you want to make art you have to be selfish that's you have to be selfish yeah there's no other way. But you can't. You don't have to do 100 percent selfish. No, no, no. But uh, <laughs> I, I, I think if you have unlimited talent, you should be unlimitedly selfish. If if you don't have the talent to just uh, make works all the time and, and things are spilling out of you, then maybe working with other people is a better way to. Yeah. Mm, maybe that's a pod, a podcast episode for the yeah. the future. Talent, because it's like. Um, Different people would describe that in different ways. Yeah. And, uh, so right. we had um, very far off topic, we, but we, yeah, basically things well, are data visualization. Yeah, where do we? Yeah, exactly. The quantity, yeah, the quantification, data visualization, data in general, useful to start a conversation apparently. <laughs> and it's but, less rational uh, than you think. 
because that's you, right. you yeah. choose the data points subjectively. That's basically maybe that's the that's that's kind of it. That Autodesk example hopefully illustrated that. Yeah. Um, but um, certainly, like people need you know, more legroom, so we made really long desks. <laughs> you can use it, but ultimately, all decisions end up in the hands of humans. And if they don't, as in the Autodesk example, they're Be misinterpretation careful. of human. Yeah, it's a misinterpretation <laughs> of human needs. Yeah. But even before computers, they made terrible decisions on modern cities that they thought were completely scientific. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, and like but I said, we still every year in science. Books, uh, yeah. <laughs> well, every year at Terrestrial, I've had a different data analyst tell me, you know, the last one was a jerk. So, anyway, uh, what's, what's what's this up? week's field uh, recording? What's the field recording? Yeah, I think uh, Piri Quick he sent us field recordings before, and this week he sent us two, and I oh, like cool. this one a lot. Uh, he said, uh, "I was in Helsinki. There was a performance night called Noise Gream." And the sound consists of three things. Whipping Gream in a class bowl, Sithetisitator that connect to plan, <laughs> contact okay, mic on pen that scraped a canvas. We're not certain whether he means whipping cream in a glass. Like, there might be some... I think it's in intentional. Here. I mean, it's a noise recording and it's art. So. Oh, yes. So it's like he's a little... There's like some onomatopoeia like yeah. some like yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. he's making the sounds in his text okay well the name already is very mysterious Piri noise cream yeah. yeah I kept I, I read that as like noise like nice <laughs> yeah <laughs> like noise 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 bro <laughs> <laughs> noise cream <laughs> so anyway it's so wonderful that Piri sent this in and it's actually quite a unique recording yeah so enjoy and see everybody next week thanks everyone bye buy our shirts <laughs> goodpointpodcast.com Good point podcast got home by crop top shirts. Thank you. <laughs> there. Thank you. Bye.